Now, I, I hope you realize how incredibly racist that question is. Now, not racist as in you, but racist in terms of how the world is that assumes that the center of history is the Western European. We know about the Western European, you know, experiences of history. But now there are these other histories, you know, uh, that we have to be aware of. My name is Donald, almost forgot my name there, and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've liked our content so far and enjoyed it, please consider liking this video, subscribing, and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with Dr. Luazi Lushaba. Dr. Luazi Lushaba has a PhD from the University of Witwatersrand. He has taught at Fort Hare, Wits, and more recently at Harvard University in the USA. He also holds a visiting fellowship at the African Studies Center Leiden in the Netherlands. Doctor, welcome to the show. Um, the Commandante greets you, Commandante greets all your listeners, and the Commandante is very happy to have this conversation with you, Donald. Great, thank you. Um, so, Doctor, you recently made a statement that landed you in quite controversial waters regarding Hitler. Can you um, tell us what happened there and how you were perhaps taken out of context? So, let us begin here. I did not make a statement about Hitler. I had absolutely no interest on Hitler. What I was teaching is a course titled Introduction to Political Science. On that particular day, as I had done in several other co other classes, I was basically taking students through the intellectual history of the discipline of political science. And the aim of the course, as I kept saying to students, was to read the discipline against its own self-understanding from the perspective of the black colonized. Simply put, the intent in the course was to show to the discipline of political science its blind spots. What were the things that it was incapable of coming face to face with because in its retrospective telling of its history, it always did so from the perspective of the white colonizer or the European man. And so we were given it an opportunity it had never had in its life of seeing itself from the perspective of the other. And so the interest in that class was to take students through the intellectual history of the discipline. And the intent, as I've said, was to take the discipline at its own self-understanding, how it has always narrated its history, but then show to it what it omits in that history. And how has the discipline told its history? Often enough, any student of political science would be taken through, you know, at the beginning, a discussion of what is a discipline. Now, in 2021, if you walked into the halls of any university in the world, you are going to hear lecturers say to students, a discipline is a systematic body of knowledge 
that has its own founding fathers, that has its own technical vocabulary, that has its own exclusive subject matter, and that has its own methodology. Now, this is 2021, but you have people who go to class and tell students that discipline have founding fathers. How patriarchal these disciplines are, nobody quarrels with it because when it's European thought, we turn a blind eye to its limitation. On this particular occasion, we're taking students through the approaches that have been dominant in the study of Western political science. And there are many of them, but on this particular day, we were looking at through institutionalism, which is one of the core, you know, approaches in the study of political science. In fact, it sits, you know, at the beginning of modern disciplinary political science in the 1920s as it began in America. Now, what is the approach? The approach basically, as it directs, the study of politics focused exclusively on the institutions and not just any institutions, legal institutions, those institutions whose existence is provided for in law. Now, what was the intention in taking, taking the students through the legal institutionalism? It was to show that in its historical progression, the discipline has always proceeded from the sensibilities of the white European. It has always done so to the neglect of the colonized, the black colonized. Its sensibilities are unable to come to the realization that there are other human beings other than the Europeans. And how is this so with the legal institutional approach? So the legal institutional approach became dominant from the 1920s in America, you know, where the modern discipline of political science started. And as I've said, its focus was just the institutions, not just any institution, the legal institutions. And so the study of politics was virtually limited to the study of the executive, the parliament and the judiciary and the laws that established these institutions. It continued to be dominant from the 1920s until the 1930s, until the 1930s particularly until after Hitler's rise to power in Germany through democratic elections. And so when Hitler ascends to power, what follows subsequent to that is the Holocaust. That very unfortunate- Sorry, Doctor, when you say um, you ascended to power through democratic elections, can you, can you explain that? Through democratic elections. Okay, and precisely what so was there were elections. There were elections that had. Hitler did not, you know, engineer a coup or anything. There were democratic elections in Germany in 1933. No, and he won the fair enough, but he received the plurality of the vote. But he basically circumvented all laws to become a dictator of the country. If you allowed us, you know, um, to finish, you would understand the point. So Hitler ascends to power through democratic elections. And what follows that is the unfortunate incident, which is, you know, the Holocaust. Now, suddenly, what happens as a result of the Holocaust is that the institutional approach suddenly comes to realize that how could it not have anticipated that politics 
is not limited just to the institutions and what the law provides. So what the institutional approach had not anticipated was precisely what you are pointing at, that there are human beings who have agency, who interpret the law, but who also can manipulate the law. But all of that had been left outside of the purview of politics because the institutional, the legal institutional approach had said, to understand politics, all you need to understand are the institutions and the laws that provide for their existence. Everything else does not matter. And so if you look at the early texts in political science, they are all about the judiciary, the executive, and parliament. You know, or in other instances, it would be the study of government because basically those were the institutions. But it forgot about the agency of those who populate those institutions. And so it was incapable of preempting or even seeing that democracy could be subverted even when the institutions and the laws are there. And so because of the Holocaust, the institutional approach is dealing legitimized within the study of politics because in simple terms you could say that the critics of the institutional approach are saying to the institutional approach how could you have failed to see that institutions depend on human beings and hitler has just proven to you that the law is not enough to secure democracy and so this is how the institutional approach becomes delayed legitimized in the study of politics, you know, following the Holocaust. Now, what had happened during the Holocaust? It is that Hitler had decided to annihilate the Jews, you know, and he had reasons for doing so. And we'll get into it, you know, a bit later on. The point now to make is that if you look and think critically about the history of humankind, if you for a moment dissuade yourself from the white European tendency to think of humankind as synonymous with white people, if you think critically about the history of humankind, you then realize that, wait a moment, by 1939, when the Holocaust is in full steam, there had been several other such, you know, Holocausts. But the institutional approach was not moved. It was not delegitimized. Or, more appropriately, the point we were making in that study of the discipline of political science. We're not concerned about Hitler. You know, we're concerned about the discipline of political science. Now, you realize that the discipline of political science, but also all modern disciplinary knowledges, their starting point and their end point is always the sensibilities of the white European. Anything that happens outside of the wide European is immaterial. It doesn't influence the development of the discipline because if it had been so, the discipline of political science would have realized that prior to the Holocaust, white people in South Africa in 1921 had annihilated the Israelites, you know, in Queenstown, in what is today known as Queenstown, you know. Now, here is the irony of that thing. It is that those people called themselves the Israelites. So they took after the Jews, but today the Jews show no sympathy towards them, even though they had taken 
you know, their identity and called their religious group the Israelites. But that's a, a secondary point. The point I'm making is that prior to the Jewish Holocaust, when present-day Congo, um, DRC, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, when it was still Congo Free State, it, when it was still a personal fiefdom of King Leopold, you know, of Belgium, 10 million Congolese people were annihilated. Four million more than the Jews who were annihilated during the Holocaust. But the discipline of political science was not moved. It did not think, you know, that its development had to adjust because remember, when the legal institutional approach had failed to give an explanation or even preempt, you know, the Jewish Holocaust, it was pushed aside in the discipline of political science and substituted by something else. But it doesn't become delegitimized when the Belgians or when white people kill 10 million Congolese people. Neither does it become delegitimized when Germans first experimented what they were going to do to the Jewish people. They first experimented it here in Namibia. Yeah. In 1904, when they killed the Herero Nama people, 1904 to 19, and I have recently apologized for that. Well, I care less about the apology. It's not enough, you know, to apologize. Did they apologize to the Jews? No, they did not. They gave them reparations. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to make an argument for. It. I'm just saying. I don't know. Just bring context. So the point is that. Political science was not moved when, you know, Germany experimented what it was going to do. It didn't foresee that this might actually happen, you know, to white people. And so here is the point we were making in the discipline in that lecture. It's nothing to do with Hitler. It has everything to do with the fact that modern disciplinary knowledges begin and end with the sensibilities of white people. It is incapable, modern disciplinary knowledges, and here by modern disciplinary knowledges, I'm referring to all the disciplines that are taught in the university, from the social sciences to medical sciences. They are all incapable of apprehending the reality of the black colonized they begin and end with the sensibilities of, you know, white people because it is only after Hitler decides to kill the Jews that a genocide is named a crime. So one could even hypothesize that Hitler did the world a favor because then we would never have had the genocide declared a crime had Hitler not done what he had done, because on several other instances prior to that, we had seen things worse than what Hitler did, but the world did not think of declaring, you know, genocide a crime. So he served humanity in that instance by bringing to humanity a realization that to annihilate people because you do not like them for their identity must be considered a crime against humanity. That is what we were doing in the lecture. We had no interest in Hitler at all. We made a statement about Hitler. We made a statement about modern disciplinary knowledge, more particularly political science, which is the discipline we were teaching to students. Okay, well, that makes sense. I mean, um, 
But I, I would just add one point to that, and that I think the not only black genocides, but also, for example, uh, if you can term it a genocide in communist countries, like in, for example, the Ukraine or the massive famine after Mao Zedong took power in China, I think that killed about, I don't know, what, 30, 40 million people. And that doesn't get, I think, also the publicity it deserves. I think there's a lot of uh, mass murders in history that really deserve more attention, including black ones. Well, I, I think you, you're getting it wrong um, because you are looking at the incident. What needs to be looked at? What were the ideas that rendered such actions possible? This is where you then distinguish between all these events that you want to lump together. They do not belong together. The motivations were different. In China, the motivations were different. Wherever else, the motivations were different. In some instances, yes, it might have been. But what we are going to miss is that we are going to bring every kind of murder in large numbers into the same category. And what you are going to elide is precisely but we are concerned within the discipline, in the study of modern disciplinary knowledges, which is what are the ideas of modern disciplinary knowledges that render these actions possible? Because we need a certain set of ideas in order to execute certain actions. And what made the Holocaust possible is not Hitler. It was the ideas that preceded Hitler. And that's where I want us to go back to in order to be able to make sense of what Hitler did. And because our concern is modern disciplinary knowledge, not just the historical incidents, because we are going to make a mistake, as you've just done, of lumping together things that don't belong together. Okay. Uh, so uh, Europeans have, like you've said, uh, not always accurately represents history or uh, they, they, they follow the, the wrong methodology. So what massacres or genocides deserve more attention, especially black ones? I mean, you've, you've mentioned Namibia and the Congo. Is, is there any other that we really need to know more about? Now, I, I hope you realize how incredibly racist that question is. Now, not racist as in you, but racist in terms of how the world is that assumes that the center of history is the Western European. We know about the Western European, you know, experiences of history. But now there are these other histories, you know, uh, that we have to be aware of. And often enough, the responsibility is transferred to the victims of those actions historical occurrences in order to enlighten the perpetrator. And so the perpetrator has given himself or herself, you know, a right to be ignorant about the crimes that he or she has committed. Europe and white people committed those genocides. They should be the first to know they can't in their history, you know, decide to remember certain things and forget the things that they did to us and then ask us to say, Tell us, what did we do to you? Now, you know where that comes from? It comes from the supposition of the Western European that he or she is the center of history and has a right to choose what to be aware of and what to be ignorant of. 
and that right is not extended to other people because as you are going to see in a moment there is an expectation that i should know more appropriately about the jewish holocaust such that i have to be corrected if in any way or have to be chastised if in any way i get a certain detail about the holocaust wrong when there are people who know absolutely nothing who elect to know absolutely nothing about the kind of injustices we've suffered at their own hands it is that racism that we're fighting against in our teaching and even though i'm going to answer your question i want it to be known that it is motivated or its condition of possibility is an incredible sense of racism that has underguided the procession of modern you know european if, thought if i can ask one follow-up question to that um if white europeans are the ones suppressing the knowledge we need then who must i ask that question my point is that Europe and Europeans and white people generally have an expectation that I should know about the Jewish Holocaust. Why don't they extend the same expectation to themselves about I ought also to know about what black people have suffered? Isn't, there, isn't that a that, reasonable that, and legitimate that's perfectly Yeah, that's perfectly valid. I'm just thinking um, you're saying that white Europeans have misrepresented or not focused on the right issues. So that's why, for example, I'm not uh, now asking you to represent it in a more a better light or give me the um, facts that we really need to talk about. No, so when you, when you say misrepresented, that's partly correct. But the more appropriate way of thinking about it is that they have constructed history to the exclusion of other people. And so what needs to be done is to rewrite the history of humankind so that that history of humankind does not become reducible to just the history of the Europeans, so that it includes everyone else. When we have rewritten that history of humankind, we would not need to search what were the other incidences, because it would be there as part of the history of humankind. And so we may actually be equally responsible, just as those you know, who have represented the history of humankind as synonymous with the European, they are equally responsible just as me in rewriting that history. So we must not move that responsibility to the victims. It would be unethical. Okay. Um, yeah. Now that makes perfect sense. But I mean, uh, yeah, I just for our viewers, for example, who are and perhaps they're black as well, or colored, or Indian. What what happened in Namibia and the Congo? Just for some context um or other genocides it, it doesn't necessarily have to be black just some genocides that really need some more public attention so let us begin here let us begin from the fact that the the concept of a genocide does not enter european thought until after the holocaust the united nations when the namibian holocaust happened when the south african you know, um, annihilation of the Israelites, Enoch in Kijima's Israelites happened. The United Nations, which was then, you know, um, the League of Nations, did not consider it necessary to pass 
a statute as it did in 1948, you know, to declare a genocide a crime. So the concept itself, its entry into, if you wish, modern thought, but more specifically, its entry into legal philosophy and legal thought generally is an indication of racism because it only enters legal thought, international law, only at a point when Hitler decides to kill other you know, white people. So prior to that, the most appropriate way of understanding, you know, other genocides, as we now retrospectively apply concept, you know, to those other, you know, genocides, the most appropriate way of, you know, um, getting into grips with that is to think about this in this way. It is that when Europe when European man decided that he will now be God on earth, which is what white people think of themselves today, even in South Africa today, when they think of themselves, once European man thought of himself as God on earth, they decided that the whole world was now available to them to do unto it as they wished. Now, here was the problem, and this is at the moment of Europe's transition from the medieval period to the modern period, you know, um, when, when, you know, the modern man comes into being. At that point of the transition, Europe considered itself and Europeans considered themselves as God, basically, on earth. And that you would find, of course, if you go back into early philosophical thought of that time, particularly Descartes you know, uh, in his meditations. At that point, when man becomes reason and everything becomes explicable through human reason, when man no longer has to refer to God as it was the case in the medieval period, what happens is that European man plants himself precisely at the place where God had been prior. And God had the responsibility for the whole of the cosmos to allocate people into their places, to allocate things in their places and name them. Now the European men became responsible for that. In that process, what happens is that Europe thought that it was, or European men thought himself as being above everything else that existed on earth. But here was the quandary. The quandary was that the European man had discovered for himself and later European woman, you know, they had discovered for themselves norms of human difference. Slavery had existed in Europe, by the way, prior to that. Europeans had enslaved each other, you know, in the medieval period and earlier. But in the 16th century onwards, Europe had discovered norms of human difference for themselves, which was, it was not right for men to enslave another. Now, here is the quandary. As Europe the ships were ready to set sail from Europe to the non-Western world. The question was, how are we going to legitimately enslave those other people and colonize them? Since we have discovered for ourselves norms of human difference, which suggest that it is not right for one man to own another as a commodity. Here was the answer. The answer is those ones are not human, which is we, the black colonized, are not human. It is only Europeans who are human, and therefore it is right to enslave and to colonize the other, you know, people who are not European. From that moment onwards, 
Black people's lives have been a genocidal survivor. From that moment onwards, all we have been in the world until today, we are a people who are dodging the annihilation at the hands of white people. And so you will miss it if you then say, let's go look at what happened in the Congo, what happened in, in, in Namibia, what happened in Queenstown. It begins right from the moment of Europe's transition into the modern period. The coming of the industrial modern period in Europe was our coming face to face with the European will to annihilate us as the black colonized. It is for that reason that in New Zealand, in Australia, the Aboriginal people were nearly wiped out. It is for that reason that in Latin America, the indigenous people in many of Latin American countries were wiped out. It is for that reason that you had whole continents annihilated by white people because they assumed that we were not human and therefore the norms of human difference that applied to them did not apply to us. So what happens in the Congo, what happens in Namibia, what happens in South Africa is a culmination of centuries long thought that said it was right to kill us because we are less than human. It is for that reason that today you have white people in South Africa who shoot a black person in a farm and say they mistook him for a monkey or an animal. You know why? It is not a pathology of those people. It is a history of thought that said, because we are less than human, it is right to annihilate us, or there is a certain kind of treatment that we are fit for as black people. And so those guys could have chosen any other explanation for shooting that person, but they drew from an existing repertoire of thought that said that, Black people are less than human. And what is less than human in the hierarchy? It's animals. So it is no coincidence that when racism shows itself up in football stadiums, for instance, the world over, those who show those, they opt to depict us in animal-like you know, um, gestures because we are less than human. So genocides alone will not attend to what we have faced it is that right from the moment of the coming of modernity, modernity for us as the black colonized has been a genocidal act and it continues to be until the present. Yeah, um, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, if I can sort of paraphrase, it's wrong of me to look at numbers. Um, just because there's more people, for example, that were officially killed in Namibia or the Congo, you're you're saying there were a lot of people, perhaps on, on a longer period, uh, disadvantaged or killed in other countries, and just because it didn't happen in a genocide, nobody nobody focuses on that. Um, and yeah, every, everything started with the Europeans. But if I can ask you, why do you think South Africa would have looked like? if the Europeans had never landed on these shores and compare it with present times or um, after the Europeans arrived, what do you think South Africa would, for example, I know it's difficult, but what do you think South Africa would have looked like in 2020 if the Europeans had never landed on these shores? Now, again, I have to say, 
you know, um, how incredibly racist the question is. And I, I see that, you know, your, your mode of thought basically proceeds from that kind of racist thought, because if you don't get the point I'm making, let me demonstrate. What we are asking me is tantamount to asking a victim of rape, what would your life had been had you not been raped? Because remember, integral to colonialism, which is the coming of Europeans to Africa, rape, slave rape was integral to it. So what we are doing is asking victims of rape to say, what would their lives had been like had they not been raped? And you don't see anything wrong with it because your thought pattern proceeds from a very racist framework that says for these other people, it is possible, you know, to say anything about them. But when those things are said by about white people, then, you know, certain sensibilities of justice, morality, I, and other sensibilities spring into action. I, but I'm going to answer your question nonetheless. I, am, I, I teach political science. So since I teach science and not clairvoyancy, I can tell you exactly what I know, you know, would not have happened if colonialism had not happened in South Africa or if white people had not colonized South Africa. I know for a fact that perhaps today in 2021, Steve Bantubigo would perhaps or probably still be alive, or if he would have died, he would have died a more dignified death and not driven by Europeans, naked, brain damaged from Port Elizabeth, what was then known as Port Elizabeth, to Pretoria. That barbarism would not have befallen Stephen Beagle. I also do know that had Europeans not colonized South Africa, or had Europeans not come to South Africa, Hector Peterson would not have died at such a tender age at the hands of white people in 1976. If he would have died, he probably would have died a much more dignified death than the death he suffered at the age of 13, just for legitimately claiming his or her, or rather his rights. I also can tell you that had Europeans not colonized South Africa, Mkwineni Mambushnoki would not have been shot in such a inhumane and insensitive manner as he was alongside those in Marikana who produced the wealth that the Europeans today or the white people today in South Africa enjoy. He perhaps would still be alive to see his daughter grow up in the presence of his father. We perhaps would live in a society that knows that it is not correct to kill black people just because they are black as it happened in Marikana. I also do know for a fact that the PEPCO 3, Sipo Hashe, Champion Galela, and Kakauli Kotolozi would not have been killed in Port Elizabeth, whilst the Europeans who killed them and burnt their bodies were sitting and enjoying a bride whilst human flesh was burning right behind them. Those values would not have come to South Africa. 
Similarly, I can tell you with certainty that Matthew Goniu, Fort Galata, Sparom Kondo, and Stelom Shaul would not also have been killed in such a barbarous manner as they were had Europeans not come to South Africa. And you would not have had a white European magistrate declare that they were killed by unknown people when he knew very well who had killed them. I can also tell you that with certainty that Onhopo Zetiro would not have been blown his face and his body blown into smithereens by a parcel bomb from white Europeans or white people such that those who had seen his body would not allow his mother to see his child at the moment of burial because the mother would have broken down to see the state in which his her son had been blown by the white Europeans who came to South Africa. I can also tell you that with certainty that Chris Martin Tembisilegan would not have been shot by that white person called Walus if white Europeans had not come to South Africa. We perhaps would still have been living with him in Africa today, or if he would have died, he perhaps would have died a death of a different sort. I also can tell you with certainty that Uhi in Zagakauta, Ikumkanyamatosa, would not have been killed just for refusing to hand 50,000 head of cattle to white European people who today tell us they've worked hard for their wealth. When we know that that wealth has been plundered from people like Inza, we know that Inza would not have died the kind of death you know, that he suffered, you know, at the hands of Harry Smith. We know that his head would not have been taken as a trophy to Britain if European people had not come to South Africa. We also know that Upambatagamanginza would not have suffered the suffering he suffered at the hands of white people in 1906 when he led the Zondi clan against the poll tax that Europeans had imposed on black people in order to force them into servitude to avail themselves as cheap labor. To be sure, between 3,000 and 4,000 people of the Zondi clan were killed in 1906 by European people. South African history does not remember that. We know that if Europeans had not come here, we would not have lost those good people who were dear to us. We also know that generalized rape that was integral to Europeans coming to South Africa, because you would also know, if you don't, I'm happy to enlighten you, you would also know that a good number of the Europeans who came to South Africa under colonialism came here or considered they are coming here as part of a sex expedition. Because in the European mind, the African was possessed of extraordinary libidinal desires. And so in order to satisfy, you know, their European libidinal desires, they came to Africa in order to have sex with the African. We know that if Europeans had not come here, generalized rape that this country today struggles with would not have been a feature of this society. Because as I said, I don't teach clairvoyancy. I can only tell you what I know 
with certainty that can be proven in science. What South Africa would have looked like, I don't know. Uh, no, fair enough. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring it back a bit, but just on one point, you said that to ask a rape victim about his rape is racist. Why is that? I did not say it to ask a rape victim is about his rape is racist. I said to ask the black colonized what it would have been like, what South Africa would have been like had the Europeans come here is tantamount to asking a rape victim what their experience of rape okay. you know, was like, because as I've just explained, rape was integral to colonialism. Okay, okay. You can't think of colonialism outside of European people raping randomly black people. Okay, no, perfectly fair. Um, so decolonization. Uh, decolonization is now a big feature at universities. Can you tell our audience what is primarily the aim of decolonization and what does it seek to address, especially in studies and all political studies? So decolonization, basically, the logic is simple. As I've shown to you, once European, once white people began to think of themselves as the center, as if life revolves around them. So, you know, uh, everything has to depart from them. Once they began to think of themselves in that way, they then thought, as I've said, the whole world belonged to them. So you could expropriate people's land, you know, take it and make it your own and shoot people randomly because they were less than human. But colonialism was not sustained by just the barrel of the gun. Its major pillar was not just naked violence. In order to enact that naked violence, you needed a set of ideas that legitimated that na naked violence. Now let us demonstrate. In South Africa, from the moment of, you know, the early European settlement in 1652, there was a trend very abnormal and obnoxious trend of white young Africa, I mean, young white people who would gather themselves into group of expeditions. They later would be called commandos who would go hunting black people to shoot them as trophy for no other reason but because they were black. But it will not suffice to look at the callousness of the air. What would be needed is to say, how could human beings wake up in the morning, gather a group of themselves, arm themselves, and go hunting other human beings in order to annihilate them as if they were gay? Now, where did these ideas come from and where did they settle? These ideas came from the universities and they settled in South Africa in the universities. And so the education system that we have is itself or was itself integral to the domination of the black colonized. 
And so if we accept that part of decolonizing is basically undoing the legacy of colonialism, it also means that we should not spare thought because thought was integral into the project of you know, colonization. So to decolonize is not an option. If we accept that there was colonialism, a logical consequence at the end of colonialism is decolonizing. So there is something disingenuous, or we must call it exactly what it is. If at the end of colonialism, people still ask us, why do you want decolonization of the university? Because what they are saying invariably or in reverse is that we must continue to live with colonial thought. They are basically asking us, why do you desire freedom? You know what is the problem? It is because white people and Europeans have never taught us intelligent enough to know what is good for us and to accept that as human beings, we also have the intellect to interpret to ourselves, not for them, to ourselves, to interpret to ourselves what is good for us. When we have decided what is good for us, we must justify it to them. We cannot have thought that suffices as long as we are convinced, convinced of its correctness. No, we must justify it to them. So until we have gone to the same colonizers and told them why we need to decolonize thought, it's barbaric, it's, you know, it will destroy society. What kind of society will it destroy? A colonial society, obviously, because we live in a colonial society. But let us try and be more exact. So if we accept that European thought settled in South Africa in the universities and became part of modern disciplinary knowledges that are taught in the university, then we must accept that we have to decolonize thought. Let's start at a level of simplicity. Apartheid, colonialism in South Africa, but you know, for people to understand, let's say apartheid, because apartheid was nothing but colonialism. Colonialism was a body of thought that depended largely on people who had studied different disciplines ranging from medicine to the social sciences. Let's escalate to a higher level. Part of what was integral to colonialism in South Africa was what was called spatial separation or apartheid planning. Now, where did they get this thought in order to be able to plan the cities of South Africa today just as they are today, such that you have parts of the city that are white and parts of the city that are black, and the parts of the city that are reserved for white people have all the amenities that you need for human beings, and the places where black people live don't have a single of those amenities. It was architecture. They depended on architects who gave them the model on how to plan for separation. Because here was the need was, we want to separate black and white people. And so they took that basic sentence, we want to separate black and white people because white people are superior, black people are inferior. We want to separate them. What did architects do? They then put that into effect by spatially separating black and white people. So it means then 
that if architecture was integral to colonialism and it served colonialism, you have to undo that kind of architecture. Because the simple demonstration of the fact is, today, do you get a sense that we plan cities differently from the way in which we plan them under apartheid? No. Cities in South Africa remain as disaggregated racially as they were before because we still operate with the same model of architecture. We carried forward the same teachers of architecture who changed nothing in the way in which they taught architect. They produced the same you know, students as they produced. And that's why you have cities today that are planned in such a manner that they reproduce precisely that racial disaggregation that was integral to colonialism. So to decolonize thought means that you have to undo the racial foundations of thought because every discipline under colonialism basically served in, to advance you know, colonialism. So to decolonize would be to make that thought serve humanity that is inclusive of black people. Okay. And um, just on a quick, this has been a very interesting conversation, but just on a last question, uh, what do you think of the fees must fall movement? And if I can ask, uh, what party best represents you, if you, if you are able to say that in current politics? So let's begin with the last question. Uh, what party best represents me? You know, again, that question comes from the supposition that we aren't able to think outside of the model that was given to us by white people. So the model of politics that white people give us that the nationalist elite takes over is the model of the modern. This is how modern society is organized. You have political parties, you have law, you have you know, all, the element, all, the, uh, all the other elements of society, and we must preserve these because they represent progress. You know. Now, this is the model. We were not party to its development. This is a model that Europeans developed to the exclusion of black people. We were not there, we were not asked what we thought about the model of organizing society along party lines. But today people tell us we must honor that model. The question should be, how best may society be organized such that it considers everyone in it, black and white, human enough? Not about justifying old white European models that were foisted on us through colonialism. So to answer your question, I do not think that political parties are ever going to liberate us as black people in South Africa. We must extend politics to domains that are incomprehensible to those who are intent on keeping us dominated as the black colonizer. Now, if that sounds abstract, let me pose a rhetorical question. When Africaners in this country were lagging behind the English, when the English dominated the economy, when the English dominated the education system, when Africaners were unschooled, did they form a political party? They did not. 
because they had the liberty to think for themselves what is the best way possible to get us out of the misery of being dominated by the English. Was the National Party not a response to English dominance? Not their response to, to English domination. Their response was what would later become the Bruderball. Oh. It didn't start as the Bruderball, you know, but there it would later become the Bruderball. That was their response. 1918, formalizing it in 1921. White people must also give us the liberty or must concede that we also possess autonomy of thought such that we may be able to figure for ourselves what is the best possible way out of the misery that they've imposed on us via the model of society that they've given to us. Political parties are not going to help us get out of, of that misery. The other point you asked, or the other question you asked, relates to the Fees Must Fall you know, movement. Now, the Fees Must Fall movement you know, uh, which gladly I participated in, you know, um, was an attempt by students to basically undo the colonial character of education. Precisely the question you were asking, what would it mean to decolonize, you know, uh, the curriculum? Now, there is something curious about the FISMAS 4, and this we must register. It did not take lecturers even black lecturers. It did not take black lecturers to realize that there was something wrong with the curriculum. It took the students to say, wait a moment, this education system is not reflective of who we are. It's not reflective of our lived experience as the black colonized. It took students. You had had black academics who continued to force down these black students the same colonial education that they had inherited. Now, the curious thing in that is that it is these very black academics who then turn around and criticize the FISMAS fall for its limitations. You did not teach them. At least they had the temerity and they had the self-regard to go to the streets even with the limited knowledge they had, you know, to say that there is something wrong you know, with this education, suddenly you have a very bizarre situation. People who were teaching colonial knowledge turning around and saying to the students, you don't understand what decolonization means or showing us the limitations of the FISMAS fall movement. Why didn't you teach them? You had them in the classroom for decades. You did not teach them and suddenly you say they, they had limited knowledge. FISMAS fall represents the most originary moment of thought amongst the black colonized in South Africa, at least since 1976. They attacked the nerve center of colonial domination, which is thought. As I said, there may and there were many intellectual limitations in the movement, but it was to be expected. These were students who had been taught colonial knowledge. But also, even with that colonial knowledge, they could still see through it. Just like Hector Peterson's generation that had been fed Bantu education saw through it that there was something wrong with it. So FISMAS 4 was an attempt to undo the colonial legacy of modern disciplinary knowledges. And as I said, 
it had its limitations, but it was opportunistically again usurped, you know, by the black bourgeois middle class that exists in the universities. Today, many of the black professors you find in white universities were promoted into professorial positions precisely because of the agitations of the Fees Must Fall movement. Because one of the points that the Fees Must Fall ra movement raised was that the professoriate in these universities is white. And certainly at UCT, many of them today where I teach, many of them would not have become professors had it not been for the Fees Must Fall movement, but they turn around to criticize the Fees Must Fall movement for its intellectual limitations. It was intellectually inarticulate. It failed to realize, you know, what were the complex nuances of colonial education, but even in its limited form, it represented the most originary moment of thought in South Africa post-1976. If I can ask one follow-up question to that, and obviously you're completely free if you don't want to answer that, but recently Professor Loretta Ferris, she was the head of um, transformation at uh, uh, Cape Town University, and she was apparently, I mean, there's been resources or news articles on this, that she was ousted because um, they replaced her with a white professor who was now the head of transformation. What is your opinion on that? Do you that obviously for you that would be a travesty? How can they replace a a white professor with a a female black as state of transformation? So let us correct um, something. Professor Loretta Ferris was not outstanding. Her term of office was coming to an end at the end of twenty twenty one. December 2021, which is a five-year term. At the end of the term, there is a possibility of renewal on the basis of performance. If you had performed, obviously your term is renewed. If you had not, your term is not renewed. You must ask her again, what was her score when she was assessed for performance by the council, by the committee of council. It is not in my place to tell you, but you must go back to ask her, how was her performance assessed by her line managers? Was it found to be in line with the expectations? Again, as I said, it is not in my place to tell you how she had performed. But as a general citizen of the university, we saw very little transformation in the five years that she was, you know, in that position. She was not ousted. After the assessment by council, she elected not to seek renewal. She, with her own hands, wrote a letter to the university saying that she will not seek renewal for her term. After writing that letter to the university, which the university informed us of, she then elected to take sabbatical leave for the final year of her term. Now, it is a permissible you know, act of employment for people in her position, you know, when they have accumulated leave, academics are allowed to go on leave. And so for the last 
few months of her term, she elected to go on leave. The university could not stand in her way and say that you can't go on leave, you must finish your term. And so we must correct it. She was not ousted, she was not pushed, she left out of her own volition. But we may be curious to find out what was the assessment of her performance, you know, by, you know, the university council. Sorry, now, yeah. Oh, okay, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, no, I just wanted to say I, I probably fell also victim to all the, all the clickbait titles that she was ousted. So, yeah, thanks for correcting me on that. Yes. So, it's a separate question then. How was she replaced? So, once we know that she was not ousted, there was a vacancy. It's a separate question then. Was it correct to replace her with a retired white male? Now, there are a number of questions that arise out of that. It is, it's very curious that it is white people who are raising the question. Most of the people who raise the question are white people. Why all of a sudden they have such an interest in our, in our interest as black people? That you must ask. And you must ask them when they raise the point about why was she replaced by a white person? Why all of a sudden are they advocates for us, the black colonized, on this particular issue? If they are genuine, we welcome their support. If they are genuine, we welcome their support, which must mean that when the next appointment happens, we will wait to see whether they will again be forthright to say, the position can't go to a white person, it must go to a black person. Because that's why we're going to see whether the, the opposition was genuine or whether the raising of the concern was genuine. They must, in that same cacophony of voices, again say, the position, by the way, is not being filled. The process has you know, began to unfold. It's now going to be advertised. The selection panel has been constituted. They must start now and say, the position can't go to a white person. And then we will know that they were genuine in raising that concern. You want to find out what do I think? I think that it was a mistake to give the position to a retired white man. But there are many other mistakes that are made by white vice chancellors. Why is it that when a black vice chancellor makes a mistake, she must be hanged for it. You have even an obscene situation of another black vice chancellor, former vice chancellor of UNISA, picking up the phone to call the vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town to say she must rescind the position. Would he have called a white vice chancellor to do that? There is racism that, you know, underlies the whole response, you know, in the whole saga. We, we have every right to disagree with the vice chancellor, the current vice chancellor, who's black and female, but we must be consistent. We must raise our disagreements in exactly the same manner that we would have raised our disagreements if it was a white vice chancellor. Oh, great. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation, Doctor. I want to give you one last opportunity to add, plug, or say anything that you want to. 
we are okay. We're good. Okay, Mark, great. But um, if you've made it this far, you've most certainly enjoyed our content. So please consider liking this video, subscribing, and sharing it as widely as possible. My name is Donald. This has been Worldview.